Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Chicago should create more affordable homes for Black and Latino families, especially in neighborhoods where prices are rising. That's just one of many recommendations in a report from the Inclusionary Housing Task Force, put together by the mayor last year to review the city's housing policies. Back in 2007, the city adopted a housing affordability law, but it's only created about 1,000 affordable homes in 13 years. That works out to less than 100 units per year. So what comes next? How do we implement some or any of the ideas the task force laid out? Here to talk with us about what comes next is Chicago's Commissioner of Housing, Marisa Novara. Marisa, welcome back to Reset. Hi, Becky. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with where we've been as a city. As I mentioned, back in 2007, the city passed a law aimed at creating more affordable housing. It's gone through a few revisions, but broadly, what does that law say for folks who don't know? Sure. The the law in Chicago, this is broadly under the category of inclusionary housing, meaning uh, a tool that's specifically set up to engender affordable housing in parts of a city that are lacking it, that tend to be the higher income parts that may have uh, a long history of excluding affordable housing, for instance. And so in Chicago, that is called the Affordable Requirements Ordinance. When it began in 2007, It set up some guidelines that if you needed something from the city, like city land, city money, or a zoning change, then in exchange, we would ask for some level of affordability in your project. When it began, though, in 2007, uh, developers could write uh, a check for the entire amount rather than building them, and most of them did. And it was not until the 2015 revision that there was actually a provision that said you have to build a portion of those units in your building or off-site nearby. And overall, and and I guess since the most recent changes, there are some successes and failures that you've already touched on. What in your eyes has been successful about the the initial law? Well, I think uh, several things. One is uh, we set in place the basic expectation that uh, it matters to us as a city that we have a distribution of affordable housing across the entire city and that we're creating places that are affordable for a range of incomes in many of the places that are higher income, have great access to transit, have lots of amenities, jobs, good schools, high-performing schools, I should say. Um, And it matters to us that this is part of the structure of what we set forward as a city. On the flip side, I would say, where where do you think it's fallen short? And and why have we not seen, I guess, more affordable housing units created since, since it was passed? Sure. As I noted, it took some time for the city to actually begin to set the expectation that we needed actual units built mm-hmm. in or near uh, those buildings so that we were actually addressing Chicago's profound racial and economic segregation, not only using this as a tool to uh, raise more money to do affordable housing across the city, which is indeed part of what it's used for. So the in lieu fees, 
that we receive now, uh, half of them go to the Chicago Low Income Housing Trust Fund, which houses families at very, very low incomes. Mm -hmm. And the other half goes to support projects uh, across the city. Our challenge with that is um, we do, we are dependent on those fees to do many of the important projects we do. And we would like, and that's one of the, one of the uh, recommendations in the report, we would like to be finding, identifying, and then implementing other sources of income so that as a department, we are not dependent on those fees and we can use this tool more fully as an inclusionary tool as it is intended. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this report. Um, obviously, there is a lot about changing that affordable requirements ordinance, changing that law, but there's some other recommendations also. So can you talk to me a little bit about what the changes the task force is recommending? So the, the report lays out some major themes that we now turn toward the crafting of the ordinance. And I, I should note, before I jump into these, that the, the task force itself and the task force report is one input of many. Mm-hmm. So uh, we just kicked off Monday a 45-day public comment period. Um, anyone can check out the report and send feedback to us at comment at cityofchicago.org. And... Um, we'll also be doing a subject matter hearing next week and uh, and so on. So there's many inputs to this eventual ordinance. But the task force itself, out of the task force, we came to several themes. Um, some of them are that right now we're looking at the percentage where that we require of units to be built versus mm-hmm. paid out in that structure that I mentioned. Um, and that, you know, the task force recommendation is that that needs to be increased. We need to see more actual units built. We also know, though, that uh, right now the level of affordability that at which they are set is too high for uh, the majority of Black and Latino households in this city. And uh, that's not an acceptable outcome for us. If we're looking at this through a racial equity lens, which we absolutely are, then we know we need to solve for that and we need to come up with some ways to get the rents to be lower and reaching um, a range of of lower incomes as well, as well as some larger units that get to different, you know, uh, bedrooms, you know, a number of bedrooms and so on. I remember there was some criticism when they revised it that a lot of what had been created before the revisions, I think the revisions in 2016. 15 or maybe the 2017 ones, but either way, they were saying, you know, it's producing a lot of studios and one bedrooms, but families can't necessarily live in those those sorts of houses. So um, the report, I'm wondering also if there was anything that popped out to you that you maybe weren't aware of before or you hadn't thought of. I know you spent a lot of your career in housing prior to becoming the commissioner, but Uh was there anything surprising in this report for you? I will say we were very intentional about uh, establishing diverse perspectives on the task force. We also knew that it's not enough to sort of sit back and then say, well, let's see what comes up from this task force. We know, for instance, that housing that is both affordable and accessible is few and far between. Mm -hmm. And one in four people in Chicago experience a disability and should have as many options as possible about where they live affordably. So, in addition to having representation on the task force, we also did a focus group specifically with people experiencing disabilities to learn more about what they need from their housing. And that is an example of something where we were very intentional about knowing we needed to learn more and we needed to do better. 
in this regard because our on-site ARO units are in usually new or newly rehab buildings with elevators near transit. That's very important for us to maximize. Mm -hmm. Marisa, in this report, there is a whole section about the city's affordable housing toolbox. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of these, uh, that, it, that these programs extend beyond just this affordable requirements law. People have probably never heard of many of these programs in the toolbox. And I'm wondering, are some of these tools a little rusty because we haven't used them as a city by previous administrations, haven't, you know, wielded them to their full extent? The ARO is an outlier in its public profile. I think sure. it's the one that gets the most attention. Um, the most attention, even though it is far from our biggest production tool. And I think it's, that is important to understand because, um, you know, by its definition, inclusionary housing is a portion of a bigger project. And so, yeah, we've had a thousand units, you know, over more than a decade. We do more than a thousand units every year through the low income housing tax credit. So I think in many cases we are getting at a higher production level through other tools um, than we are with the ARO, for instance. The, one of the you know the important thing about inclusionary tools is about where they're located, and we would if we are able uh, to meet our the last goal laid out in the in the report, which is getting at could we can we find other sources to decrease our dependency on the fees. Mm-hmm. To the degree we're able to do that, we would love to be able to get more of these units on site. Absolutely. We are committed to decreasing Chicago's racial and economic segregation. But, I, you know, I think the truth is that none of our tools are going to close the gaps on our need until, as a country, we treat housing that people can afford as an entitlement and we fund it accordingly. Well, and not any single one is going to do the work all on its own. You need all of them to to achieve the end goal. Now, last week, City Council approved a sweeping set of policies that used some of these different tools for the Woodlawn community, uh, which is next to where the Obama Presidential Center is being built. These, of course, right now only apply in that area. But I'm also wondering, does the city see what's going on in Woodlawn as a possible model for the rest of the city and for other neighborhoods, you know, potentially facing gentrification, for example? We definitely see. And when we stepped into this work with Woodlawn, I think one of the things we were really deliberate about was to say, we think it is our job. This is the role of the city. It's certainly the role of the Department of Housing. And we partnered with the Department of Planning and Development to be a proactive partner with neighborhoods. And in particular, when we know that we're we're at the onset of a really big amenity. We have seen this happen before, right? We have Mm -hmm. seen that the amenity is often welcomed and is exciting, and yet people who live in the area surrounding that amenity want to be able to stick around to enjoy it. And so how do we partner proactively with a community to ensure that that is the case? So, yeah, we went through a long process uh, with a working group in Woodlawn and older women, Hairston and Taylor, in that instance, to come up with that kind of package of, of protections. But we're, we're having the same conversation right now in Pilsen, a little village, with the four aldermen that kind of cross that, that section. Um, we have tools in place that we're rolling out to the Chicago Community Land Trust across uh, other areas that are gentrifying across the city. I think the main goal that we have in this is we don't want to be waiting for changes and then reacting to them once 
uh, we've seen a lot of displacement of longtime residents. We really are watching the data and we're trying to intervene on the front end and provide more protections for longtime residents. Right. I want to go back to the ARO, the Affordable Requirements Ordinance, that talks about giving low-income residents access to the higher income, more well-developed neighborhoods in the city. But, you know, one thing I've thought a lot about is everyone can't jam themselves into, you know, Lincoln Park or Old Town. And so I'm wondering, it, it, without creating gentrification in other areas, is there a way to also encourage higher income residents and oftentimes white residents to move to lower income neighborhoods and create sort of more mixed income communities in, in the opposite direction, if that makes any sense? Absolutely. I mean, I've I've quoted... Professor E. Ewing in the past, there's no segregation fairy, right? These are all about individual choices that uh, we as people make, as well as the changing of the systems that determine what options we have, right? So a lot of the work that I think we are tasked with in government is breaking down the barriers that may be unintentionally or not setting up, making it very hard for us to create a more diverse environment across the city. Um, But at the same time, there are individual choices that we all make that contribute to either the uh, perpetuation of our segregation or the breaking down of it. And I think we see that a lot also with what are the things that our fellow residents of the city of Chicago are urging their elected officials to do um, in the face of a proposed affordable housing development um, in their community. And I think that this is a case where we all need to examine, no matter our intentions, our, our actions perpetuating uh, the profound racial and economic segregation that we have in this city. Well, yes, there's a lot of work ahead of you. And now with this task force report out, you mentioned there's a 45-day public comment period that anyone can give input. Then what's next? What, what, what are the next steps here? Sure. There's a subject matter hearing September 23rd at the Committee on Housing and Real Estate. And then we will be spending uh, the subsequent months crafting a revised ordinance and um, hope to come out with a revision uh, sometime this winter. We're speaking with Marisa Novara, Chicago's Commissioner of Housing. Thanks so much for joining us, Marisa. Thank you, Becky. And that's today's Reset. Like what you're hearing? Help support the kind of journalism and storytelling that you've come to expect from WBEZ. We're in the middle of our fall pledge campaign, and we'd really like to hear from you. Because of the pandemic, there are so many people out there who want to give but can't right now. So they're depending on you, too. Become a member or give a little extra right now. Just go to WBEZ.org and click the Donate button on the top right corner of the page. It'll only take three minutes, and you'll feel great knowing you're keeping great local journalism on the air. I'm Becky Vivi. Thanks for listening and supporting Reset here on 91.5 WBEZ. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.